and we're on. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to Practico's Costs podcast. Um, this is our way of dealing with the COVID lockdown. Uh, instead of the breakfast meeting, which so many would have been uh, able to attend, we have decided to have effectively a chat between friends. Um, so the podcast is going to consist of a chat between Ben Williams QC, well-known cost councillor for New Square, Andy Ellis of Practico, and me as chair, Jeremy Morgan, a retired cost barrister. Um, the format obviously will be slightly different to the breakfast meeting. There won't be any bacon sandwiches, but you'll also be spared the, the fire drill, which I've had to read out in the past. Um, in terms of format, um, I was thinking something a bit like the lunch break in test match special, but without the cakes and without the pigeons on the pitch. Um, but let's go then straight into the first issue which we were going to talk about, um, which Ben will introduce. Yes, thank you, Jeremy. Uh, we were going to start by talking about uh, uh, a detailed assessment, which isn't, doesn't sound very exciting, but this is a detailed assessment that got the most hits, I think, on the lawyer website for the particular day that it was reported. And that's because it allowed us a prurient insight into the world of um, boot fees and accountants' fees in first-class commercial court litigation. It's the detailed assessment of the massive um, uh, uh, commercial court trial in Deutsche Bank and Sebastian Holdings, where a cost order um, was ultimately made uh, non-party against the then controller of Sebastian Holdings, who's a prominent uh, Norwegian billionaire called Mr. Vick. Um, and Mr. Vick, um, unsurprisingly, is challenging uh, costs which uh, amount to many tens of millions. Um, and, as a, and a particular feature of the costs are the fees of counsel and the fees of the accountants. And begin by summarising the fees of the accountants is the lawyers. A uh, striking feature is that though this was a commercial court case involving fresh fields that went through a very long trial, a trial of many weeks, nonetheless, the accountants' fees are still higher than the fees of fresh fields themselves. The total conduct of the proceedings, they're £24 million. Um, and uh, as the case was initially presented, um, you have page after page after page uh, um, of fresh fields fees they properly presented in a bill of costs. And then on towards the final page of the bill of costs, there is simply a one-liner Deloitte 24 million pounds. Um, so it does throw a certain, uh, a, a, a certain absurdity into, into, into relief where you have page after page after page of detail for solicitors. And then for, in fact, a greater sum of cost because it's a disbursement, you have a single line. Um, then as to the fees of counsel, it's an absolutely first-class counsel team. Um, the fees, as you would expect, are substantial, uh, but there was a particular challenge to the fees of, of, uh, of, of the lead counsel, who's now a high court judge, whose brief fee for trial was one and a half million pounds, um, and then a succession of lower fees for the second silk, 900,000, and two juniors in the lower hundreds of thousands. So as I say, it, it allows an insight into how the other half live. Exactly. I'd like to I mean, swear you'll put yourself on the other. Sorry, how, how did they, um, how, how did Master Gordon Saker approach that brief fee? Because I mean, I've only seen the, you know, the sort of headlines. And, and I think the quote was something along the lines of it's not the job of the cost judge to, um, you know, set what, you know, people should pay their barristers. But, you know, it was, was ever thus. But it doesn't stop um, the, the knife being wielded on occasions when it occurs to a, a cost judge that they're unreasonably high in some respect. 
Yes, of course, it's an atypical case because even by commercial court standards, as the judge himself said, it's at the top end. So no issue here of proportionality. As it happens, there wouldn't be any way because it's an indemnity basis assessment. But I suspect this is one of those cases where the indemnity basis makes almost no difference because of because of uh, proportionality simply not being a factor. Um, the um, assessment of the brief fees uh, is in fact a, you could almost call it a highly conservative one. The judge reiterates the principle that um, between the parties, um, you can't claim the cost of preeminence. Um, that's, um, he doesn't suggest that, that that is a principle that doesn't apply on the indemnity basis assessment. He cites the well-known uh, um, uh, um, Simpson's uh, motor auctions case from Mr. Justice Pennyquick and says that remains as authoritative today as it does 60 years ago. So he takes that as his starting point. Um, he, um, as you just said, Andy, he reiterates that detailed assessment isn't about determining what is reasonable for barristers or solicitors to earn. It's just about determining what's a reasonable market rate having regard to the markets. Uh, and that is in the same vein um, as a decision of the House of Lords, uh, uh, um, I think in the 1990s, uh, in a criminal case where there was an attempt by the Lord Chancellor's Department to have a pop of what was charged by leading criminal silks with reference to what, say, uh, NHS consultants got paid and similar and, and, and university professors and, and, and similar to the people at, at, at the top of, of their respective professions where the House of Lords said, well, that's simply not the job of said, taxation. It's not, you know, it's not for us to decide what barristers should earn. It's, 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 it's down to the cost judge to allow a reasonable market rate and the market rate is the market rate. And of course, in the commercial court, that works. There is a market. Um, it becomes very artificial, actually, um, in the less high polluting worlds of, of, sort of personal injury or all those areas where, where everything's on a CFA, um, um, all those areas where there's still legal aid, where the reality is there isn't a true market and, 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 and um, or if there is a market, it becomes a kind of circular and self-sustaining one. But here there is a market. And the other very conservative way the judge dealt with matters is he reiterates the brief fees and not about hourly rates, um, which is that he remarked in argument. Uh, although it doesn't come into his judgment, is something that even most clerks don't any longer seem to understand because he gets clerks paying in front of him adopting an entire hourly rate approach. But it's not just that, it's a charge for commitment. So one of the interesting things about the way he deals with a briefie here, he doesn't just deal with the briefie as covering the work up to trial. I mean, even though the work after trial, of course, is remunerated by refreshers. But in terms of determining the briefie, um, he takes into account six months of preparation and a three-month trial. Um, so he, he what is a briefie for, for nine months of work. So he is uh, adopting the approach, which I have to say, I suspect he would agree with. As a barrister myself, I would. But, but it is a charge of commitment. It's not just a charge for time. And because you don't start getting refreshed, you don't keep getting refreshes as soon as the trial stops or the trial settles, then there has to at least be some increment to take into account that you lose work, not just in the run-up to trial, but, but after the date the trial started, the case settles early. Um, the other thing um, he does, um, is he, or, or, which is perhaps more surprising, is he reaffirms traditional sort of rules of thumb. So the, the, the lead silk, uh, um, his, his, his fee is taken as the index point. Um, the second silk who gets two thirds. Um, and he says that for the juniors, it's again a useful rule of thumb that they should get half what the leaders get. Um, and he basically allows them about half of what the second silk got. Uh, um, well, when I say allows, he in fact allows all the fees in full. So it's, uh, it's uh, I mean, as I say, it may really be that the interest of the case for most um, is um, the prurience of knowing um, what goes on, you know, at that, at that level. Uh, in fairness to the practitioners involved, it's a very rarefied world with people 
um, of very rare talents uh, um, acting for very um, rich companies and, and people who are prepared to pay for the best. Um, um, I find the, the other aspect also very interesting, Ben, the, the, the treatment of Lloyd's fees, because Master Gordon Saker raises the question that uh, solicitors' fees are subject to minute analysis, as you say, page after page of detail. And then you just get this effectively a one-liner for Deloitte's enormous fees, um, which seems to me to raise an interesting question nowadays when we do have, you know, time recording and basically everyone does record their time. So we, with computerization, we have the means of actually dealing with solicitors and accountants on a very similar basis, but we haven't yet um, gone down that road. And I suppose that raises the further question is whether solicitors are subject to, to minute analysis or accountants uh, not nearly enough, or, or where we end up between those two extremes. Mm. Yes, because what's interesting is, as we all know, even on indemnity-based assessment where you are getting the benefit of the doubt, bills of cost for solicitors still tend to be reduced by a double-figure percentage, and not uncommonly by 20 or 30%, because the court's still finding an unreasonable amount of duplication, an unreasonable amount of churning, um, and also just the sense that people are doing an absolutely Rolls-Royce job where that simply isn't reasonable between the parties. And I suspect, although it doesn't often get articulated, a suspicion that at the very top end of the city, there is such a billing culture, particularly amongst the junior staff, that costs are distorted by, by the need for junior staff to meet their billing targets. Now, um, what, there is no reason at all, I suspect, to suppose that all those pressures are precisely the same within firms of accountants. Uh, and yet, uh, um, so, you know, how is the cost judge to make those sorts of adjustments to a firm of accountants fees? And that even though all experience with solicitors would tend to suggest that if the cost judge was given the transparency, those fees might be reduced by 20 or 30%. But when the fees are 10 million pounds plus, and I say in this case, 24 million, I mean, that, that's potentially a reduction of, of eight or nine million pounds. Um, so it does, it, it, it does throw into, um, question, I think, the traditional approach to disbursements. In circumstances where, as you said, Jeremy, there is a much much greater ability to have transparency now. And obviously we are also, in general, seeing a, an increase in disbursements from third-party contractors because of things like needing to get third-party contractors involved in extracting information from IT systems and so on. That, you know, back in the day, you know, those were not things you needed to go to third parties to do. Hmm. So there's an entire mitigation support industry which didn't used to exist. Exactly. I mean, as a, as a, this is possibly an overgeneralization, but my impression was that the adoption of computerized time recording was probably earlier um, and more widespread in the accountancy profession than it was in the legal profession. Um, certainly for those, uh, those, those accountants supporting, um, supporting litigation. I think the differences that I've always seen is, is the, um, the, the, the lack of granularity now in, in accountants uh, charging, they're likely to be charging in much bigger blocks than solicitors are. Um, you know, they certainly wouldn't descend to six minute units as a rule. I'm not saying nobody does, but you know, they, they wouldn't go down that far. Um, and that um, the, uh, the difficulty if you're challenging or, you know, if you're challenging a, 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 a big firm, um, the, it, it, it's you could add a huge layer of expense, I suppose, by trying to get expert evidence as to what accountants' fees ought to be, um, which again is probably a, 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 
a bit of an expensive exercise, and I'm not sure one that would that, that the court would really be that assisted by. Um, so I found tend to find the way in is more to do with um, the um, if one is challenging fees, you know, the, the the extent of the overlap between the work that they do um, and the law firm, and as you would with a section of a, of cost, you could go down the route and say, well, look, you did a load of work there but didn't use it, or you did a load of work there that didn't, you know, that, that you probably went down a bit of a cul-de-sac that we shouldn't have to pay for. Uh, and that, rather than saying, well, look, you know, this is a, you know, this is Price Waterhouse or or Deloitte's, and you know, in my view, who am I? You know, they should be charging extra rather than why? What do I know? Um, you know, and I'll say that as somebody who's struggled to with uh, looking at very lumpy forensic accountants fees for many years from time to time. Shall we then move on to um, another very interesting practical uh, issue in group litigation, which is the question of the choice of lead solicitor. Um, there's a case not so long ago about that. Yes, there was an interesting case. Um, again, it's one of those cases that's raised some light on the sort of engine room of litigation, which we don't often see, um, uh, because it was all about you know assembling groups of people into group litigation and arranging for them to be represented by solicitors and counsel. Um, and it throws up some practical problems. Uh, um, the, the aspects of the judgment is a case called uh, Lungau and then 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 and then Data, which is about a copper mine in in, in Southern Africa. Um, it's a, a, a toxic torts claim. Um, it throws up some, some, some interesting issues, as I say, some of which I think the judge does with very persuasively, some of which he perhaps skirts over. Um, the particular issue is, as I understand it, is this. There's two groups of claimants bringing claims suggesting that their um, uh, environment is being blighted by emissions from the mine. Uh, they're in different geographical locations. Um, the first group was recruited by the day. Um, and they decided not to recruit people from another geographical location because they thought they were further from the mine and their cases were weaker. Uh, but then Housefeld comes along and it recruits people from that other community. Um, they both want to have a group action, but they don't want to represent the Housefeld cohort. Um, uh, um, and Housefeld will also appear to want to instruct their own team of counsel. And so they propose that there should in fact be two subgroups within the GLO. Um, and that has a very, very um, violent reaction, I can almost call it that, from Mr Justice Fraser sitting in the TCC. Um, some of the violence is completely understandable on, um, on, on classic CPR principles. It seems to be disproportionate and wasteful to have um, um, two different groups um, going along, potentially two separate trials, um, um, two, you know, everything looks like um, and it gets duplicated. Um, that, that's obviously unhelpful in terms of court resources. It's also potentially oppressive to the defendants. Um, um, and as I say, his, his reaction to the proposition is quite violent. He calls what's proposed the Frankenstein's monster, uh, um, which uh, I, I suspect was rather harsh. Um, but what he doesn't deal with um, is, 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 is really some of the practical difficulties of what do you have where you have two groups, both um, um, being funded by no win, no fee agreements, where he is suggesting that the second group must essentially be merged with the first and therefore be represented by the lead solicitor, lead A. Um, he emphasizes that only one team of counsel is susceptible, so the lead solicitor's team of counsel, um, in circumstances where lead A and that team of counsel had rejected acting for those payments because they didn't think that they were very likely to win or as likely to win. Now that does, um, 
you know, that, that does throw some quite serious questions in a no win, no fee context. I mean, if, 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 I mean, if we just assume these groups were the same size, and as we all know in group litigation, there's several liability for, for costs. So if you're admitting into the group who are paying for work done by the lead to the solicitor, you know, another group that's as large again, and suddenly, you know, so that instead of being shared between 100 people, the costs are being shared between 200 people. Well, if of those 200 people, the lead solicitor expects 50% of them not to win, I'm not saying that is this case, I'm just using it as an example, then the lead solicitor is essentially being forced to work at half price. Uh, because if they, you know, if, at the end of the case, they're not expecting to recover um, a 50, the 50% share of the cost distributed support to those members of the group who are expected to lose. And obviously you get the same issue with the council acting on CFAs as well. Um, now I know because I've seen the skeleton arguments that these points were made to Mr Justice Fraser, um, but in his zeal for um, emphasising, as I say, understandably, the, the sort of efficiency and proportionality advantages of combining the groups, he completely fails to address what seem to me to be some very, fairly serious issues about how you can essentially require lawyers to act no win no fee for clients who they don't want to represent because they're not satisfied as to them prospects of success. Is there a, a way around that in um, devising a GLO with generic issues which are perhaps more um, fairly spread across or, or are, are, would cover both groups and then leave the, um, the risk to individual costs in the cases which might be weaker, would that be a way around it? I, I suppose it will depend very much on the facts of each case. I, I think that's probably right. I think there's probably not a one-size-fits-all, um, you know, a, a one-size-fits-all outcome. It's probably possible to deal with it by tailoring the cost orders at the end of the case and tailoring the cost-sharing order. Um, because, of course, you don't have to have an outcome whereby costs are shared uh, between each person um, um, separately on an equal share. Um, and equally, you know, I suppose at the end of the case, the court could say, well, even though um, only half the payments have won, um, nevertheless, they have still, you know, the group as a whole has established that this plant was polluting. So we will award them 100% of their common costs, so even though 50% even though of the individual claims, let's say, have failed. But it's obviously a pretty um, discomforting uh, um, experience for lawyers they have to wait to the end of the case to discover whether, whether a judge is willing to show pragmatism of that kind. Mm. Um, I mean, in general, as a lawyer, you deal with that when you're working no win, no fee by only acting for people who you think have got whatever your cutoff point is, whether it's 50%, 60%, 70% prospects of success. Obviously, it varies from lawyer to lawyer the risk they're willing to take on. But um, to say you can actually be driven to act for people who you're not expecting to win, it does seem to be um, you know, quite a, an outlandish thing. I suppose it reflects the move from the, um, the bar to the bench of the judges who now fail to see things as much as they used to from the point of view of uh, lawyers undertaking the risk and see things much more in terms of CPR style case management. Hmm. Yes, I, I mean, as we all know, co 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 you know costs issues are, are somewhat the ugly sister. Uh, and I'm not sort of, that's not a politically incorrect thing to say nowadays, I'm obviously referring to Cinderella. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, it, is un it is unfortunate that one needs to worry about these things. And in, 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 in the old world where um, the legal aid was available uh, for group actions and uh, um, legal aid um, rates were um, you know, rates that solicitors could actually live on, 
uh, then obviously they got paid a reasonable amount, win or lose, and these issues didn't happen. But when you have had to convert root and branch to, 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 to no win, no fee, um, then requiring um, a lead to list from the group action to um, act for um, uh, um, a, a, a subgroup of claimants that they're not expecting to be successful, or at least don't meet whatever merit criteria they have set for their own clients, um, then it does give rise to different issues. I mean, it would be hard to, um, it would be hard to imagine any court forcing a third party litigation funder to fund a group of a subgroup of, of, of claims that it didn't satisfy its merits test on advice. Yes, absolutely. So why should it be any different for, for lawyers? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the judge just seems to say, well, you know, the, 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 they're just the lead solicitors or they, you know, all the lead solicitors do is they instruct counsel and they act as the liaison point. But it seems to me that that in itself is, is obviously wrong. The lead solicitors are going to be taking the lead on the common issues. Um, they are going to be, so, so, so all the work that leads up to the trial of lead cases, for example, is overwhelmingly going to be done by the lead solicitors. Um, if liability for those costs is shared between a group into which the court has forced the lead solicitors to accept a large number of claimants admitted who the lead solicitors don't think will win, then they expose the lead solicitors to losing you know, a pro rata, the pro rata share of the common costs which are attributable to those members of the group. And yes. as I say, these are things which Mr Justice Fraser doesn't even, um, doesn't even address. No, and also, and I, I, mean, I, I don't know, I mean, necessarily we're generalising here, but I, I find that um, judges at the end of cases are less prepared than I would have expected to make broad brush cost orders um, where they should realise, or sh if they don't, should realise that um, a messy issues-based type order would create huge problems on detailed assessment. Nevertheless, they 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 find it hard to get away from a um, from a, a, a type of partial cost order that that reflects the the judgment in a fairly sort of forensic way, um, dumping a massive problem and huge costs onto the assessment exercise later. Yes. Yeah, well, I don't disagree with that. I think there is just a, I, I'm afraid I, I do you know, just get the sense that there is just a, that the, some members of the judiciary do just find these issues you know, almost to be sort of a bit beneath the salt, if I can use that old-fashioned expression, or to use a different expression, just to be rather grubby. Um, but you know, lawyers haven't asked for these grabby arrangements. So, you know, I, in fairness, for example, to Lee Day, I could imagine there is a firm in the country that would have had more of a, a legally aided ethos. Um, you know, working no win no fee with something that has been imposed on them. Yes. Um, and uh, in those circumstances, the courts they can't just turn a, a, a sort of haughty, a haughtily blind eye, uh, you know, to uh, arrangements which they may find sort of unpleasing. That's just not viable with the funding system that we've been that, that, that we've been given. Yeah, no, well said. <laughs> Another handy weapon for defendants in facing claims like that. Right. Um, another issue which we we've had a chat about was um, refusal of mediation. It's sort of runs and runs this one, but anything of interest recently on that? Yes, well, of course, on the assumption that people um, who um, are listening to us um, have some interest in cost issues, they probably at least heard of Halsey and Milton Keynes, which was a decision of the Court of Appeal, I mean, um, I can't remember if it's 2003 or 2004, um, and it was followed by another case called PGF2 and OM, 
FS um, in about 2013, which is a Mr. Lord Justice Briggs case. And those are both cases which emphasize the importance of mediation. Um, uh, and in the second case, the, um, the PGF case, um, it was said that uh, even um, declining an offer to mediate, not, not, uh, de de declining an offer to mediate or simply being non-responsive to it, could lead to a cost sanction. And since then, there's been a steady dribble of, 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 of cases where um, uh, parties who have been otherwise successful have been penalised for not mediating, as most people will know. Um, you do get the uneasy sort of sense that it's sometimes used as a bit of a crutch um, by judges you know, to avoid making a cost order against the party they may feel rather sorry for, um, uh, rather than an area where you can necessarily isolate clear principles. But there's been a, a recent case, and I don't think anybody would suggest it in largest law, but it's just an interesting illustration of how these things work. It's a case called Wells and CDRE in the Viva. Um, and it's a case which raises a number of sort of classic post-judgment cost issues, issues based costs, uh, should there be an indemnity basis order and so on. But the, the, the key issue, and it's the one that's got a bit of attention in the legal press, is it's another case where a party um, was penalised for not mediating. And essentially CBRE declined to mediate twice. Um, once it really just ignored matters, it, it, it was unhelpful generally, it obstructed the response to the letter of claim and such like. And then later in the case, in the run-up to trial, um, it declined to mediate again, saying there was no longer time. And the judge criticised it for both. Um, Mr. Wells went to court and lost, but the judge said, well, it's just the sort of case where you know, mediation might have unlocked things. It is perfectly clear, um, I haven't, I'm not claim to be familiar with the, the substantive issues in any depth, but it's perfectly clear it's one of those cases where there was quite a lot of development on all sides as to what the issues were perceived to be and how they were put and concessions uh, um, that, that had been made were withdrawn and so on. And the judge made the point, well, if there'd been a mediation at an early stage, you know, those are the sort of things that would have come out earlier and more inexpensively. And it was also one of those cases where, although Mr. Wells ultimately failed because he didn't have the legal rights, um, one does get the sense the judge um, um, thought, yeah, but there was a pre-existing relationship between all parties of a commercial nature. And it's quite possible that a mediator might have been able to unlock an outcome which, although you know, not strictly reflective of their actual legal rights and responsibilities, may very well have led to a sort of commercial settlement based on you know, a sense of whether there was a legitimate grievance and, and some kind of moral um, some kind of moral ob obligation. And so taking all those things into account, for the first period where, where as CBRE refused to mediate, the judge deprived them of 50% of their costs. And for the period close to trial, um, he deprived them of 20% of their costs. Um, so um, it's an entirely fact-sensitive case, but it's another, you know, it's, it's another um, a, a sort of revelation or reminder as to, you know, refuse mediation at your peril. Hmm. I quite like the idea that um, <clears throat> because of the pre-existing relationship, there might have been something a mediator could have done, which of course is very much um, familiar territory to people who do mediations. Um, but interesting to see that brought across to uh, litigation where it's not all or nothing, but, you know, it's one's legal rights or nothing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I think you know, it probably is fair to say that we as lawyers can easily forget that in most commercial disputes, you've got people who do have pre-existing relationships. Sometimes they've come to hate each other, but often they haven't. You know, there's been some business setback. Everybody's trying to protect their own position. But, you know, that is the sort of classic thing. And this goes back to what Lord Justice Brooks said back in the original Halsey case. This is the sort of thing that skilled mediators can unlock and they can come to outcomes that judges can't because judges are constrained by legal tramlines. 
whereas you know mediators can remind people you know come on you know you guys did business together you know for some years you know you know, you, you know maybe you should be giving this guy a bit of a break um and um and people can you know that way they can sort of feel vindicated by assessment even if it isn't all that they might have achieved legally or hope to achieve legally so you know i, I think this is one of those areas where it all seems to make quite a lot of practical sense so though you know, as a lawyer it does leave you sort of uneasy about first of all the sort of randomness it introduces into the system and the unpredictability um, and secondly you know as i think we all know, know now the extent to which demands for mediation is on maybe made to taxpayers yeah. yes i mean certainly it's, it's used i think as quite a blunt instrument by people i think on the more on the receiving party side i think um in, in in terms of putting added cost pressure because from a from a paying party perspective um if one is ever involved with um putting together um budgets or projections of uh, you know cost benefit analysis of running cases to detailed assessment then there's a there, there's a worst case scenario you know that one would paint and then there's a there's a really 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 worst case scenario which is that you go through a failed mediation and then go through a detailed assessment yeah um and, and and that you know that 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 is something that um um is is a could even be a, a legitimate disincentive to go to mediation and I, and i think it might be reasonable to say that that you know the sort of thing we've just been discussing about these sort of you know, you know slightly um uh, um you know, imprecise but nevertheless very human uh, um issues that you may get in the commercial dispute where there are business relationships and something has gone wrong it might be possible to put the pieces together again at a human level and that unlock assessment I mean, you know that all sounds a bit you know much less plausible in the context of a, of, of a cost dispute where you've had the substantive dispute it's been decided someone has presented a bill of costs uh, you know the other side can look at the bill of costs and say well you know here's where i think the duplication is i think exactly where it should be high this is what i'm prepared to offer for you I mean, you know, there's, there's, if I can put it this way, there seems to be, you know, rather less material on which a mediator might work some magic in those, in, mm. in those contexts. And, mm. and, 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 no, I'm not saying mediation has no place in the cost context. You know, there may be cases where it's very helpful. But I think you know, it, does, it, 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 it doesn't seem to have the same sort of uh, um, uh, reach that is describing cases like Halsey where you can unlock intractable, pro intractable problems. Because reality is in cost, it's often intractable problems. If someone is demanding X, you're willing to pay Y, and you don't necessarily need a, a neutral third party to unlock it. Um, you know, there, 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 of course, will be cases where people have got so entrenched or, or so unable to see which one of these that would be helpful. But you know, I don't think it necessarily you know, ought to be something that is expected as a matter of course. Because as you say, Andy, it does actually just potentially you know, add a, a, an additional stratum of costs to what's already a fairly expensive process that most people think should be made cheaper, not dearer. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I think as a, I, I, I think that's a really interesting sort of discussion about ADR and mediation. And um, I mean, I, I, I tend to quite like cost mediation where the bill is big enough. And that's one, of, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in. I'll be interested to see how the Deutsche Bank case pans out because there was a huge discussion about how much detail you should, you should realistically be expected to go into when you're, uh, uh, when you're preparing a bill that size, you know, and how much information does the other side need to make cogent you know, submissions and informed decisions, so on and so forth. But most of the time we know that multi-million pound detailed assessments are really cumbersome. And and in that situ and, and in those situations, um, 
I put a big tick in the box, you know, in terms of the in, in terms of an assessment about whether mediation is a good idea. The other is is that you know, as you before, where there is some animosity between the sides, um, the fact that mediation tends to have you in your separate rooms for large parts of the proceedings and not together, like you're crammed together in a courtroom or used to be, <laughs> or or even together in a sort of joint settlement meeting, um, is uh, is rather a good thing. Um, but uh, I mean, how have you found um, how have you found mediation during lockdown? Have you been involved in any? I haven't done a mediation during lockdown. No, I've done quite a few video hearings, but but not mediation. Because yeah. I mean, I was concerned. I think we discussed this before that um, one of the ways that mediation works is the sort of uh, the what I call the sort of waterboarding effect of all being locked up in the same offices, you know, and. Uh, uh, until in the end, at some god un, uh, you know, god awful hour of the night, everybody can't stand it enough, and they do, they do finally come to a conclusion. If you're in a slightly more relaxed environment where you can ping in and out of a, a, a of an online mediation in a forum like this, with some separate rooms or WhatsApp groups going on in the background, there isn't. They, there could be. There could be a tendency to drift. Yes, that's probably right. I mean, obviously, one of the ways I think mediation does work also is, is you know, it often gets the decision makers into into close proximity. Whereas in a cost context, if you have a detailed assessment, you know, very often the decision makers are fairly insulated from it. And the, you know, there's uh, um, you know a couple of, of, of specialist cost advocates are grinding away in front of a, a cost judge, you know, in the, the more or less privacy of the senior court's cost office for day after day after day. Um, you know, so from that point of view, you know, mediation can be uh, an unlocking process by getting the senior stakeholders you know, to, to it gets their attention. It's a half day rather than a it's a half day rather than two weeks. You know, points like that. So yeah. I mean, it certainly has a role. Um, and I certainly agree with what you said about big cases. I think you know, their detailed assessment really does become so difficult. Um, I suspect that, however, for sort of day in day out cases where you know parties present you know claim X and 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 paying party um, offers you know offers a man Y, and really a mediator wouldn't have much to say there. Yeah, no, that's uh, fine. Very good. Thank All you. of this segues quite nicely into an issue which Ben was reluctant to discuss, um, which is uh, Four New Squares Cost ADR scheme. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to discuss it simply because it's quite an interesting idea. Um, so Ben can be forgiven. He's not trying to plug the scheme, um, but to tell us something quite interesting about uh, an innovative scheme. Yes, I mean, th this was obviously motivated by the C-19 lockdown, um, where we thought that um, there might be an appetite um, you know, for people to cook detailed assessments, uh, particularly outside the High Court, are just not going to be given a high priority. And as the courts gradually reopen and try to catch up their backlog, well, it seems, um, you know, for a considerable time, that's likely to remain. Uh, so we started looking possibly um, um, at the idea um, of, of, of um, um, having some um, ADR process which we could um, help with uh, um, at 4 Square. Um, and our first thought was actually the smaller cases, the reasons I've just been given about the lockdown and the county court. But then you know, obviously you start thinking about it and you suddenly realise really for the reasons that Andy has given, the ADR is, is perhaps, if anything, or even more attractive in the big cases. Um, so, um, you know, what we're essentially um, doing is offering, um, you know, uh, uh, um, to uh, assist uh, and in a flexible way. I mean, you know, most of us have got mediation experience and we can mediate, um, but we're also you know, willing, for example, to carry out neutral evaluations, uh, um, you know, if both parties are say at loggerheads uh, um, as to what an hourly rate should be or to whether cost proportionate. 
um, you know, rather than, than the, you know, and, and quite often once you unlock a big point like that, then the assessment follows. So rather than going through all, all the way through detailed assessment and all to get a judicial decision on that point, um, you can just, without needing to commence detailed assessment at all, um, come to um, one of us and ask either for a neutral evaluation or for a binding expert determination. Um, um, you know, so those are the sorts of things we're, we're, um, we're doing. We're also um, willing to conduct paper assessments um, in the way that the county court uh, um, conducts provisional assessments in bills of up to 75,000, but we're you know, willing to do that for bills of a larger amount. Um, so, so you know, that's the, um, you know, that, that's the sort of services which we're looking to offer. And, so it does um, seem to me that um, I, I don't think that you would necessarily get a lower quality of decision making um, from um, experienced uh, um, council with a cost equity, whether at Four News Bay or any other chambers that offer the service, than you would by going uh, to um, the cost office um, or to a regional cost judge. Um, and you potentially get a decision you know, more quickly and through a less cumbersome process. Hmm. Have you had an experience? I don't know when it started. Have you had much experience of it yet, or is it still, uh, still early days? It's still relatively early days. We've had a lot of interest, um, uh, and interest. Um, well, I think I think probably um, in what I might call the mass market. Of course, this is what this is one of those things which can only work if both sides agree to it. And in the mass market, you often have such entrenched differences between the claimant side and the defendant side. I've always been sort of rather unsure as to the extent to which. Um, you know, you will get claimants and defendants both agreeing to use this novel procedure rather than going through the tried and tested one. Um, um, and too, I suppose, to, to this extent, also, you might also be said that we're more unpredictable because, you know, most people will know what their local judiciary judge is allowing um, and they won't necessarily know what, what you know, what, what we might do. Um, uh, um, but we've had quite a lot of interest, you know, um, at, the, um, at the more bespoke end of the market from city firms and such like. Well, good luck with that. The, the other um, issue which I was interested uh, to see was raising its um, not ugly head a bit was uh, solicitor and uh, client assessments. Um, I always loved um, solicitor and client assessments because so much of the basic law was decided by chancery judges in the 19th century at a time when chancery judges did not look down on costs as something infradig. They were extraordinarily knowledgeable. Um, but I, I gather there's a bit of a resurgence in that uh, area, which may or may not be for good reason. Yes, I, I think you know, so, so, so some people will, will remember uh, Jonathan Swift's little ditty, fleas of smaller fees that bite them, and so it goes ad infinitum. And what we have, um, and, and what, what we actually now seem to be seeing, if, if, if anyone listening to this is a personal interview lawyer will forgive me, um, is we have... You know, we, we, have who, we, we have the question of who chases the ambulance chases, uh, because there now seems to be a small industry of, 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 um, of solicitors who are going around finding former clients um, of um, mostly uh, personal injury solicitors, uh, mostly personal injury solicitors conducting mass market fast track work, uh, who are saying, well, hang on a second, did you lose 25% of damages to these people? To which the answer is very often yes. Um, and then they ask questions like, well, actually, you know, did they check that you had legal expenses insurance? Uh, um, you didn't have legal expenses insurance. And, and often the answer seems to be uh, that if there was a check, it can't have been a very good one because they're, they're almost immediately found they did have legal expenses insurance. Or, or, and, and, or they're asked the question and, and tell me, um, can we see your CFA? Because we wonder if that 25% deduction resulted from a 100% success fee. More often than not, the CFA is reduced than it does. Uh, but you were a passenger in a car, you had literally a 100% chance of winning your claim unless you were a fraudster. Uh, 
uh, um, say, say the, the, the sub-ambulance chasers. And suddenly, a solicitor client assessment, which if not a, a hen's tooth, was a pretty rare event, particularly outside the cost office. And suddenly you're beginning to see hundreds and hundreds uh, um, of these coming forward in the county court. And from what I have seen, it is something which is tending to increase rather than to, rather than to, to decrease. Because I think you are now beginning to get claims management firms which are themselves targeting the, you know, the former clients of, of large personal injury firms. So there is a real resurgence. Um, and although it's happening at the moment, mostly in the context of small personal injury cases, I don't necessarily think it's going to be confined uh, you know, to, to, to those cases. And certainly solicitors who act on CFAs, uh, whether it be um, for um, 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 personal injury claimants or other claimants, you know, may begin to see their success be challenged, not as was traditional before the last bay reforms by the opposing party, but by their former clients. Mm. And, and will this in some cases be to the point where nothing is due? I mean, for example, failure to um, assess LEI properly? Well, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's not an uninteresting point because, of course, in a lot of these cases, the, 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 in fairness to solicitors, the real motivation for not looking very closely at LEI isn't because they want to mock their clients with a success fee. But it's just if you go to LEI, the LEI will send it off to their panel firm um, and without wanting to overgeneralize very often the panel firms you know they're not being very well paid for the work they do uh, um, you know you don't always get the best job uh, or at least that's what a non-panel firm would tell you um, but uh, it does that does enable the um, uh, um, the, 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 the um, aggressor in these disputes to say well if you had done the LEI work properly um, the case would have gone off to a different solicitor and you'd have been paid nothing now, I rather suspect, however, that the cost judges aren't going to allow that one. I mean, the other solicitor um, um, uh, would still um, have charged them something. Um, but what I suspect the other solicitor would have done in, all, in most LEI cases is, is the, they would have taken the costs that were recoverable from the other side, and that is all they would have taken. And so insofar as there have been deductions from clients' damages to top up the cost that's been recovered between the parties, you know, they, 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 they may have to be paid back. Mm. And interesting also is the overlap between solicitor and client assessment as a procedure and a negligence action. Well, I mean, that's an interesting one because I, I mean, to my mind, um, I think it's so far mostly just been assumed that, for example, a failure to elicit BCE, there is a point for detailed assessment. But I mean, on the face of it, I'm not sure that's quite right. Detailed assessment is about whether or not the success fee was, re, you know, say, say the success fee was reasonably incurred. Well, on the face of it, it was reasonably incurred because the client entered into a CFA. You're asking the antecedent question as to whether should the client be given different funding advice and that certainly is sounding something that is is potentially a professional negligence question mm. isn't it up there's something in my head from massey and carey going back to 19th century decisions about you've got to separate negligence from um overcharging yes and these are i mean that that, that case rings a bell with me it's not at the tip of my fingers but you know, these are obviously important practical questions mm. for two reasons I mean, firstly, you know, a professional negligence action, the solicitor gets all the protections of disclosure, uh, um, you know, oral evidence and a trial. Um, and if you are, you know, alleging, you know, essentially misconduct against solicitors, aren't they entitled to those things? Um, and the second point, of course, is this may be very important for solicitors' insurance, because if they, um, if they pay damages professional negligence uh, subject to their deductible, they're insured. Whereas if a cost judge just says, you know, because you didn't give the advice you should have given, you have to disgorge, you know, some 
thousands of pounds of charges, that's something against which they're almost certainly not insured. Hmm. I think that probably about wraps it up. It's been, um, for me, fascinating to catch up with you guys. And uh, the, the process is different, and that's been interesting. Um, whether next time we, we meet, um, it'll be with bacon sarnies and far drills remains to be seen. Um, bring bring your own bacon sarnie. <laughs> the way to do it. But, uh... <laughs> I think it remains just to, to thank you both, particularly Ben, for... Um, participating and giving us um, some really interesting thoughts on um, not so new developments and new developments at the same time. So thanks very much. Indeed. Thank you. I should stop recording now. Thank you. Okay.